Thank you for tuning in to a Centerpoint Church message. Our mission is to help you take the next step in your relationship with God. We hope this message achieves that and inspires you to both grow in your faith and live it out today. Enjoy. Welcome to Centerpoint Church. My name's Aaron. I'm the pastor here. You're in for a one-hour service with a mission to help you take the next step in your relationship with God. It's what any good Christian church should do, help you connect with God in a worshipful way and in a way that helps you grow in your relationship with Him. Our style maybe is just a little bit different than any other church you've been to, but we're still true to the Bible and we take God very seriously. This week we're kicking off a new four-week series called Summer Blockbusters. That's why you get popcorn, dig in. You already did, I can hear it. Um, if you didn't get one uh, while the hosts were coming down and now you know that it's popcorn and not some weird church thing that we were handing out, just wave your hand and the host will come bring you some. Like, if you missed out on that, they'll bring you some. Um, but anyways, with this series, uh, Summer blocks, Blockbuster, when I think of Blockbuster, I think of movies with explosions, right? I think of fight scenes or battle scenes, like this was like one of my favorites growing up from The Matrix. And I think of heroes, right? You know, like Batman, he was my favorite hero that was in the movies. But actually, a blockbuster could be any movie. A blockbuster would be something that produces great power or has great success as a movie. Uh, or it's just very powerfully moving. I mean, if you're old, Blockbuster used to be a place that you went to to rent physical movies. Do you remember this? Like, you actually would go in and you'd rent something physical and you'd take it home and then you'd get, like, fee you'd get fees if you were late, for hy hypothetically speaking, of course. <laughs> All right? It used to be a physical place. And then you'd get something physical that you'd bring home, like a DVD or a VHS. Have you ever seen those? Yeah, all right. Anyways, that, that's one of those if you didn't know what those are. But for real, uh, our four-week series that we're doing this, this month, uh, it's going to cover movie-like stories in the Bible, stories that we can learn from and think about and apply to our own life. One that... Ones that maybe are, are what I think about when we talk about summer blockbusters. Ones that have like explosions or battles or, or more. Specifically, next week's message is all about that. There's kind of like these battles and just epic things happening in it. But there are some stories that have these great plot twists, are these powerful narratives where things in the Bible happen through God. And today's story is full of that. The twists of today's story, it almost feels like a theater or a dramatic play even. Uh, so that's how we're going to approach it and how I'll tell the story. Like a theater, we got our, our, our curtains. Uh, so we're going to be talking about the story of Esther today. And a little bit of detail you need to know about the story of Esther is we're, you need to know that it has its own book in the Bible called Esther. And the scene is set in the Old Testament after the time when God's people have been rescued by Moses. But years later, they were conquered by the Babylonians. And after being exiled for years from their land and being conquered for years, some were able to go back to their hometown, but some stayed. Some stayed where they were at, and that's where our story takes place today. And although this story that we're looking at today, it's in the Bible, 
what's weirdly strange about this story and this particular book in the Bible is God is not mentioned one time in it. The author is unknown, so we can't completely ask, like, why is God not included in this, and why is it in the Bible? But if you listen closely to the story, you will see the intention for this is to show that God has his hand in history and in directing both believers and unbelievers alike to get his will done. As we read through this story today, I want you to watch for how God shows up and intervenes in people's lives. But ultimately, as we do here, everything here at Centerpoint, we want to make it practical for you. So as you're watching and listening to this story of how God intervenes, I want you to think for yourself. Where is God continuously showing up for you that you could easily skip over and not realize a time when God was involved? Is it maybe a push into your current career or a push into your marriage? Or is it something maybe you hear at church or from a friend? Is it a, a time where like you just showed up and you, you felt in your life that you needed to do this thing in the church? Or is, is he showing up to push you in the direction of your family, of faithfulness, of forgiveness? Because when we look, you'll see that not only in this story, but in your own life, God is evident, and God intervenes to get done what he intends to get done. And you can be a part of his plan if you so choose. So we're going to get started. So we're going to have our, our theater, and we're, we'll, we'll get going with our, our skit for today. <clears throat> can you guys quiet down a little bit? We're about to get started. A long, long time ago, there is an entitled and evilish king named King Xerxes. He decided to throw a party, and not just any party, but a party to show off his wealth. Now, it's a party for 180 days long. A party of drinking, romance, laughter, entertainment, and more. And then after the party, both him and his queen host a separate banquet to recover from their 180-day party, a, a banquet that lasts seven days long. There are no limits on drinks at this banquet. And on the seventh day of the banquet, the king is in high spirits. Y'all know what I mean when I talk about that. He requests his advisors to bring his queen to him with her crown so that he can show off her beauty. Well, she refuses. He gets angry and does the tyrant king thing. He throws a fit. He throws a fit, and not just a light fit, but a fit where he decides to write a nationwide or kingdom-wide decree that every man should be the ruler of his home and that the queen, the queen of that time is no more is no more. A bit dramatic, eh? Sometime later, though, as every high has, lows creep in for this king, and reflection from what just happened by the king happens. And it says, after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. So since he has people literally forced to cheer him up, his personal attendant suggests, let us find a new queen for the king. So off the hunt begins. As the scene changes, we meet two new people, Mordecai and Esther. 
Now, Mordecai is a Jewish man, a Jewish man, an Israelite living under the rule of King Xerxes. Mordecai happens to adopt his cousin named Esther. Esther is a girl that he decided to care for when her parents died. And she's known to be, hmm, a looker, beautiful, in which Esther soon gets discovered by the king's attendants in their search for a new queen. As this selection happens, Mordecai warns her to keep her Jewish heritage to herself, keep it quiet, and he finds a way to advise her while she is sent to be with the king. Now, as she's preparing to meet the king for the first time, we enter the palace quarters. Esther is in the mix of other women as potential suitors for King Xerxes. But before she meets King Xerxes, she goes through some intense beauty treatments. Now guys, as I was reading this, I know what you're thinking. Typical, right? That maybe is what you're thinking, typical. But after reading this, let's just say I realized I got a good. I got a good at home, and if you have a spouse here, you got a good at home too, because Esther is to go through a two-year-long beauty treatment before meeting the king. Can you imagine ever going out, ever? Church attendance would be horrible. All right. Right before the king is about to meet Esther, though, an attendant advises her to not take or ask for anything when she meets the king. The meeting finally happens. One shot she has amongst all other women, and sparks fly. Xerxes loves her. It was the longest relationship without a catfish result, if you know what I mean. He declares Queen Esther, queen. While at the same time, her adoptive parent, Mordecai, works his way to a palace official to continue to be close to Esther during this time. And they lived happily ever after. No, right? We're just getting started in the story. Uh, one day, time later, Mordecai arrives. Mordecai happens to be in the right place at the right time, and he overhears two of the king's advisors planning to assassinate King Xerxes. Mordecai tells Esther, and then Esther tells the king of what has been heard. After an investigation is done by the king, the claim is discovered to be true, and Esther gives Mordecai the credit to the king. Shortly after the men do, do the plotting, the, they become discovered, and quickly after, impaled on a sharp pole. Dun, dun, dun. This won't be the first of the story, by the way. There'll be lots of deaths in the story. The words and the saving of, king, of the king by Mordecai, though, goes down in King Xerxes' book. Trust me, we're going somewhere with all of this. We just need to meet one more character as the plot thickens and the scene changes. Time passes, and there's this one more man named Haman. Haman is promoted to the highest king official. Haman is, well, a bit proud of his position. He's a bit expectant of his position with the king. He loves the attention. He loves to be bowed to. He loves to be praised. He loves to be rejoiced over and more. Now, everyone respects him. He's the right-hand man except one guy, 
this one guy who makes him furious, and this one guy's name is Mordecai. If you remember, that Mordecai that just saved the king. Mordecai just ticks him off. Well, news comes out that Mordecai is a Jew, is of Jewish heritage, which is why he doesn't bow to others. Jews have their one God, whom is the only being they are to bow to. Well, in response, Haman's response, he does the extreme next. You know those people at work who like do this one thing that's kind of breaking the rules a little bit, but then the boss discovers it and then decides nobody's doing it ever again and like makes it a rule? That's basically what happens here. What happens is Haman does this thing with Mordecai. Haman states that because of Mordecai's disrespect of not bowing to him, he has a distaste for all Jews, in which all Jews must be killed, all thousands of them. Haman casts lots or shakes dice to pick a day to propose the elimination of the Jews to propose to King Xerxes. After these die are cast, the decision is March 7th is going to be the day nearly one year later. So Haman approaches the king and he says this, There is a certain race of people scattered through all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. If it pleases the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. The king is, you know, good old boys with Haman and quickly states and, states and says, yes, let's do this. And the heavy drinking begins with him. As the decree is written, it is sent to the public and confusion, fear, hopelessness stir with the Jews. As we're about halfway through our story, I got to ask you, have you been there before? Have you been confused fearful of what could happen next for you and your family, feeling as if only bad is about to come, feeling that there is no way out, feeling of, what do I resort to? In response, we see Mordecai gets furious. He goes into active mourning, fasting, and putting burlap and ashes on himself, an ancient sign of crying out to God. While Esther is still, you know, queening it up in the palace, she's a bit oblivious of what's going on. And she realizes, what's wrong with Mordecai? What's going on? So she sends an attendant to ask the question, what's your deal? Like, why are you mad? Mordecai gives all the information and tells her to go to the king to beg for mercy. Yet everyone knows, both Esther and Mordecai, no one requests things of the king unless asked. It's a law. The saying goes, anyone who requests things from the king without being asked is destined to die. And Esther initially responds to Mordecai's words saying, I'm good. No way. I like being the queen. But Mordecai explains to Esther with some of the richest words. He says this, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. 
if you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Mordecai explains, God's people will survive, whether decimated or not, by King Xerxes' rule. But you, you perhaps are one who can intervene now. You perhaps are made to intervene. That's some heavy stuff. That's some heavy stuff. Have you felt that? That maybe, that maybe for you, maybe you're in the family you're in on purpose. Maybe you're in the city you're in on purpose. Maybe you have access to things on purpose. Maybe the job, the relationship, the upbringing, the financial situation, the community, the friend group, the church, the nationality you are, you are on purpose because you can stand up for something in a time such as this. So Esther, Esther responds. She says, go, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go and see the king. If I must die, I must die. Days pass, and Esther enters the court, the throne room, but not without her own plan. Esther walks in, and she's greeted by the king pleasantly. He asks what she would like. And she responds and requests for Haman and the king to come to her banquet. She responds and, and says, come enjoy it. Come and join my party. As she knows pretty quickly that this king loves parties and lengthy ones, right? Oh, this isn't a one-night thing she has planned. This is a multi-night party. Haman and the king, they arrive. They enjoy the first night of the banquet with plenty of drinking. They then ask, what is it you would like? Esther replied, this is my request and my deepest wish. If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request and do what I ask, please come with Haman tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for you. Then I will explain what this is all about. Another banquet, another day. Haman leaves happily in a high state of mind, but just so happens as he's all giddy and happy to bump into an old friend, that old friend Mordecai. Mordecai he bumps into on his way out and the fury instills in him. Yet surprisingly so, he calms his temper. He returns to his high state of mind and boasts about his honors, his wealth, and the invitation he just received by Esther to his friends and family. But just when you think he's over it, he says this. But this is all worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew just sitting there at the palace gate. So Haman's wife, Sharish, and all his friends suggested, set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall. And in the morning, ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. When this is done, you can go on your merry way to the banquet with the king. This pleased Haman, this request. And he ordered the pole to be set up. Side note, I don't know if you noticed, but things are about to get a bit gory here. A bit sharp. 
That same night, though, that same night, the king so happens to have trouble sleeping. Something just keeps him up. So he orders an attendant to do some nighttime reading from his book of history. That's what we all do, right? When you can't sleep, have someone read to you. As the accounts are being read to this king, one pops up, one account in particular pops up from a while back on how Mordecai exposed the plot of how others were attempting to assassinate the king. He stops the reader and he asks, what reward or recognition do we ever give Mordecai for this? The king asked. His attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. While at the same time this discussion is happening, there's stirring happening out in the courtyard. The king notices someone. It's Haman. It's Haman out in the courtyard preparing this pole of death for Mordecai. And he comes to request to kill Mordecai. The king says, bring Haman to me. Let's, let's talk. What does he need? With Mordecai both on their minds, without either knowing it, the king gets to it and he asks. So Haman, or, so Haman came in and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Haman thought to himself, whom would the king wish to honor besides me? right? It's going to be me. I'm the right-hand guy. So he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horses be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse, having the officials shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. I imagine an expectant smile is on his face as he says this, right? Excellent, the king says. Quick, take my robes and my horse and do just as you have said, for Mordecai. Mordecai. So Haman follows orders. He does exactly as the king states. Can you imagine that smile on Mordecai's face? Right? Afterward, Haman hurries home, dejected, completely humiliated, and let's be real here. He's ticked. He's ticked. He vents to his wife, which I'm sure many of us do, but is quickly hurried to Esther's banquet, round two, and the party begins for the second time. The party begins, drinks and all are flowing again, and the king asks with Haman present, what is it you would like, Queen Esther? Queen Esther replies, if I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. The king responds, Who would do such a thing to you and your people? King Xerxes demanded. Who would be so presumptuous to even touch you? The glance, the hand raises, and she declares, Haman, Haman. 
the king is furious. Will, the king is furious, and he looks out into the courtyard to think, and Haman, his senses are feeling, this is not good for me. His sense is that things are not going to go well for him. So he approaches Queen Esther for his wife, but the king looks back as he's about to, to discuss with the queen, and it looks as if Haman's approaching Esther violently, and the king exclaimed, will he even exalt the queen right here in the palace in front of me, before my very eyes? And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. One of the king's attendants brings to attention the king and says, what do you want us to do with him? We notice there's a sharpened pole out in the courtyard. He intended to use it for Mordecai. What do you want us to do with it? And the king says, impale Haman on it. The irony, the poor decisions, the rage, the drinking, the plotting, all become evident. That same day, everything of Haman was handed over to Esther. Esther, in Esther 8, 1, it says, Mordecai was brought before the king, for Esther had told the king how they were related. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken back from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's property. It seems to be happy ever after, right? Yet there's still one remaining problem. The decree of the massacre of the Jews has been permanent. And what has been written in the king's name cannot be revoked. But the three of them, the king, Mordecai, and Esther, they devise a plan to decree a new decree for the same day that gives Jews in every city, every nation, the authority to unite and defend themselves. They were allowed to kill, slaughter, and annihilate anyone of any nationality of any province who might attack them, their children, or their wives. And the day for this would also be March 7th. When this was sent out, this new decree, the Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored everywhere. In every province and city, wherever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and had a great celebration and declared a public festival and holiday. And many of the people of the land became Jews themselves, for they feared the Jews might, what the Jews might do to them. March 7th comes, and the Jews fight those who they see as enemies and completely defend themselves. All of Haman's family is annihilated and ironically impaled on that pole. The king even decrees an extra day to defend themselves. As these two days come to a close, Esther and Mordecai decree a remembrance of this day as a festival, a festival of Purim, because the dates of the killing of the Jews, they were decided by dice, by luck, or by fate of casting lots. The timing couldn't have been more divine. So they honor the festival to remember what had happened on this day. Both Esther and Mordecai, who become Mordecai, who becomes King Xerxes' highest official, become instrumental in caring for the welfare of the Jews from there forward. The end. The story of Esther, it's a story for the movies. It's a story for people like you and me. As I'm wrapping up, we realize this story is full of anger, plotting, death, 
drinking, entitlement, rage, sex. It's full of disobedience to God's ways of living and his high standards. It's full of omission of even looking to God or even declaring God. Yet in the midst of all of this, all of what's happening, the story of Esther is a reminder to God's people, to us. It shows us that God does not abandon his people or his promises. It shows us that God shows up in mysterious, unique ways. It shows that God can work in both believers and unbelievers alike. So as I close us with our first blockbuster and send you off reflecting on this story for this week, I want you to think, where is God continuously showing up for you? For the people in Esther, it was in the lots, casting lots. It was in her character, in her beauty. It was in her connections. It was in being in the right place at the right time. It was hearing the right thing at the right time. It was having a moment of confidence at the right time. It was provision and earned influence. It was an encouragement to take life-changing risks. What is it for you? What is it for you? Where is God evident when you think he's not? Is he pushing you a certain direction in your career? Is he pushing you a certain direction in your marriage? Is he nudging you to do something in your church? Is he providing you confidence to take a risk? Do you just happen to hear about things in the right place at the right time? Do you see a need in the right place at the right time? Has he given you influence that you can use? My favorite verse from this entire book is this. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. When I put it to our connection and our situation, it reads as this. If you keep quiet at a time like this, you, me, Deliverance and relief for God's ways will arise from some other place. We don't get to take part. But you will miss out and pass away. Who knows if perhaps you were made blank for just such a time as this. What's that blank for you? Is it to forgive? Is it to stay? Is it to love, to help, to lead, to serve, to influence? I'm going to pray right now that we watch for God's ways in orchestrating things for us and act on them. If you want that too, you can pray with me in just a second here. But I'm also going to pray today. I believe there's maybe a person here or two who have never asked God to show up in their life, to orchestrate, to guide, to forgive, to lead in the way that Jesus shows us God can. If you want that and you want his daily influence and reminder of how to move through life, you can tell God that. You can tell you want him to be a part of your life. I'm going to pray that for those people as well and to, have them help th and to help them make a decision to follow God's guidance in life. If you're either in either of those camps of wanting God's direction or of embracing who God is for the first time, you can pray with me right now. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the story of Esther, of, of showing us of how you can work through unique ways, unique circumstances, and, and unique like people even. 
God, I just pray that as we look to our own life, we realize that you show up in unique ways in our own life. Sometimes we don't notice it. Sometimes we don't give you credit, but you are moving in our lives. And so God, some of us here for the first time are saying, we want to be more aware of that. We want you to move in our life daily. We give you that authority to move in our life. And God, we just, we pray that you help us notice those things. We want this connection with you. We want this relationship with you. We know we've messed up on our own, but we know that through your guidance and through your forgiveness, through your direction, we can have a life that's honoring to you. So God, some of us are saying we want that. We want that connection to you. In your name we pray. Amen.